like it's been a minute. <laughs> yeah, it's been a while. It's been a while. My favorite song. It's been a while. <laughs> Since we've done a podcast. <laughs> Who is that? Is that... Uh... Uh, that would be Stained. Yes, thank you. I've, 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 I've followed them on tour for months. You'd think that I would remember what band it yeah. is. Do you remember well, the tour of uh, 1999? It was, it was a beautiful era. Um... Yeah, I was uh, just a little kid then. Oh. Remember, because you're old and I'm not. You could bring you could bring kids on the Stain tour. There were tons of mothers <laughs> and fathers who just went from Stain show to Stain show. It didn't oh matter God. if Limp uh, Biscuit was headlining or if Lincoln Park was on the bill. You brought your kids. It was beautiful. Some people did that in lieu of home study. You know, they would just oh, teach boy. their children through Stained teach them mathematics, teach them, uh, of course, English composition, because mm-hmm. what is more powerful in the English language than a stained lyric? No, that man's a poet. Yeah, poet. And, and you know, know, you learn the laws of the road, the rules of the road. That's right. It's, a, it's the kind of education that school can never truly prepare people for. My God. I could tell an anecdote about how my dad uh, knows one of the guys from Stained, but... What? Um, yeah. You serious? I never heard this before. I mean, I feel like this is just going to add more fuel to the fire of everyone saying that I'm just like uh, a, a rich PMC member. N- not even PMC, just because that's what I am, but like a member of the oat, oat, oat bourgeoisie. I mean, but, you're, um, you're among friends here. I mean, we can only edit it out <laughs> if it makes you look like Marie Antoinette too much. Oh. But like, yeah, one of the guys from Stained uh, bought a house down the street from my dad and he's his neighbor. And I remember he like had the neighbors over. I forget. I think it was like, I don't remember if it was my dad's house or the guy's house, but it seems like it'd be at the guy's house if he just moved in. And he was like, hey, neighbors, let's make friends. (laughs) And my dad told me that he told him his daughter was a big fan and i'm like dad why'd you true. say that about me <laughs> liar <laughs> it's hard i will not be a part of this <laughs> i can just imagine him uh the singer from stained or whoever it is coming over your father's house with like a freshly baked apple pie and just be like i'd like to introduce myself i'm such and such from stained would you like to come to a dinner party this evening and it's like a really fancy it's like got the whole spread it's got like a full bar you have people in tuxedo but they're all wearing like cargo shorts oh my god yeah no and and maybe he brought like a nice big signed poster for uh you know for his neighbor's daughter who he thinks <laughs> is like in high school yeah totally and it's like the oh, hugest stain fan has like like weird purple hair and stuff although you might and have I- had that actually and I have to, I have to pretend like I'm excited to meet him so that I don't fuck up things between my dad and his neighbor. See, this is the perfect <laughs> scenario for a new situation comedy you could star in. It could be like you'd be playing yourself young and the guy from Stained would be playing himself and various different hijinks could ensue. Oh boy. Well, I think ABC I'll, or NBC would go for it. <laughs> I'll put that one on the list of ideas that I have that I'm not ever going to come to fruition because they're bad ones. Hey, listen, you're, you're trying to make moves, the next moves in your career. Maybe this is uh, maybe the stained rom-com might be the way that you uh, come up in the world. My God, tell me. I'm here um, for it. <laughs> but yeah, um, this is, 
This is definitely something to consider. Um, this is definitely I I... the uh, the antifada, right? We should probably introduce the uh, Oh, yeah. Ourselves. Well, I mean, people know by now. Yeah. <laughs> but yes. Hi, welcome. Antifada, welcome. Yeah, welcome to us. A nice, nice low energy welcome for a nice low energy day. Yeah. Um, we almost didn't record an episode today. Yeah. Because I don't know, we we're lazy and Andy's out of town and we're like, yeah, I'll just unlock slightly. But you know what? No, we're going to go the extra fucking mile and by the extra fucking mile. I mean, do our only job right now, right. which is like pretty easy one. Spend an hour and 15 say, minutes talking shit. Spend, spend an hour bullshitting and put it out as one podcast a week yeah sometimes one and a bonus but um <laughs> probably not this week so you know what we're fucking here and we have no right to complain because yeah. it's a pretty cool job actually it's a good it's a good life it's a good life although i've said this a million times i do have to get back to construction soon because mm -hmm. this pandemic being indoors for an entire year is driving me batty and I really need yeah. to get back out there. So soon enough, I have my SST card, my site safety training card, all ready to go. So hopefully I will be freed from the bonds of being merely a podcaster, which is maybe the worst thing you can say about anybody. No offense. Yeah, same. Really, I really got to get back out there on the job site too. I'll see you there. Yeah. <laughs> I do need like some kind of a, a extra stream of income, but that's neither here nor there. I'll figure it out. Yeah, this isn't um, uh, Antifada I finance chat here. We're not going to be doing I, our yeah. own finances. We're, you're not going to be revealing how much you spend on candles. No, this is going to, this is actually going to be a personal finance podcast from now on. Oh, um, cool. I was recently on a road trip with a friend of mine and I listened to the podcast that normies listen to. And I was like, oh shit. Um, maybe we got to expand, uh, our, our offerings a little bit. Not that she's a normie, but, um, Hey, maybe she we does. can get sponsored by like wall street journal or financial times. We do have a, a, some of their articles to talk about today. We do indeed. Um, maybe this will be our, our break into the, uh, into finance media. Perhaps, I guess I should note that I'm back from my trip. Um, y'all may have noticed that I was gone for a little while. That's because I was at spring break. Spring break forever. The only people who, um, who didn't know that were people that don't watch our Twitch stream, meaning people who are well, failing us and failing <laughs> themselves. Because we've talked about it a lot on the Twitch stream, which we're now doing like I four know. or five times a week. I mean, I I feel strange about it, right? Because like I feel like if I say anything that I said on the Twitch stream, that I'm just repeating myself. But a lot more people listen to the podcast than the Twitch stream. Yeah, for so, now. For now, I mean, we're hoping now. To, to boost the ratio up a little bit. It is a fun time, and we do, uh, yeah, we let loose. We go casual on it. We talk about stuff, you know, similar stuff to what we talk about on here, but uh, more of it because it's like two, well, three I, hours, like four times a week. So people should get yes. on board if they haven't yet. Twitch.tv slash The Antifana. Yeah, I think we should definitely do a better, better job promoting the Twitch on the podcast so we'll also be putting our schedule in the show notes yeah. for anyone who wants to watch us on screen just bullshitting about whatever it's it's a fun time it's like it's a good chance to have um less structured conversations because i feel like most right. of the podcast episodes we put out are more formal and structured these days so we, i mean not this one but, no, but <laughs> most but of them it is true though like i think for 
almost all of our episodes have been super structured. They'd have like a topic and a guest and we'd have like people, other people in other podcasts who I won't name are usually surprised by like our huge documents of like notes and questions and stuff like that. We do prep and we do keep things really tight. So it's nice to loosen it up every once in a while. Yeah. Get loose, get limber. Um, but in case Bust you out have all not- of the stained jokes we had in our back pocket, Oh my God. Yeah. Um, more, more of that witty repartee you can find on twitch.tv slash the Antifada. Um, no, what was I going to say? Uh, yeah. Uh, for those who don't watch the Twitch, I was on spring break, as I mentioned on our episode of Jake Flores, spring, break. spring breakers, spring break. And Forever. now I'm back. You are back. You're back to pod. I- what are we, what are I'm we? I'm back. I, I have um, several tramp stamps and, you know, some braids in my hair, richer. Mm. I have several shades. Tanner. Just kidding. Got no tan. Um, but yeah, I feel I'm refreshed. Like that's a lie too, because I stayed out kind of late last night, but, uh, Uh-oh. let's just, let's just fucking do this thing. All right. Yeah, we're, I, uh, we, we are literally I listen to some true crime podcasts. It. Yeah. Uh, We're literally already doing the thing. Like, this is the thing. It's happening. Oh, yeah. Wait. I mean, it's not the thing. No, no. Like, capital T. Capital T. We always get to that at the end. By the end, we always come around to that thing. The thing I meant was, of course, a podcast episode. That's right. Um, Let's be specific with our language. Okay. Um, So, anyway... There is an article that I wanted to bring to your attention from the Wall Street Journal. Mm -hmm. Um, Did you have time to read it? I did. I had time to read uh, both the throwback one from, what, the 1970s and also the one that just came out in the Wall Street Journal, both of them. That's right. Um, that's good. That's good. Um, shout out to Courtney Soliday for helping us get around the paywall yeah. through LexisNexis uh, sub. So... Here we go. Uh, I'm just going to read it and maybe we can uh, like get get some takes going as we go along. Have are you we, fired up the take machine? Yeah, I'm ready. It's it's ready to roll. Uh, are we going to do the one from the 70s or the one from today first? Let's do the one from today and we can do the one from the 70s if you feel like people need to hear it. I think it's really funny. So that maybe, yeah, let's just go through it and we'll see if we get to the, the older one. All right. All right. Here we go. So it is called Down with Big Business, comma, again. Mm-hmm. And it was written by the Wall Street Journal editorial board. Famously uh, an anti-business, anti-capitalist body. Right. So, yeah, there's there's no byline on this. Actually, in the LexisNexis version, I'm not seeing any byline. But in the Paywall version, I see it's from the editorial board. So I'm just going to roll with that. Yeah. So here we go. It is dated April 15th. 2021 tax day. Uh-huh. And uh it is it's an editorial but it's not just any editorial. It is the official opinion of the Wall Street Journal. I think they're so. just salty cuz they actually had to pay their taxes. <laughs> Perhaps. So, here we go. Hum. A woke left turn of much of corporate America has us thinking about a long ago journal headline down with big business. What? From the Wall Street <laughs> Journal? 
That header atop a 1979 editorial came in a decade like this one when prominent companies were accommodating an aggressive expansion of government to political applause. Mm. Mm, wonder why. Let's yeah. keep let's keep. What are the 70s and today have in common? I don't know. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Let's find out. Let's the find editorial out. noted. How big companies like GM were signing up for new and costly regulation during the Carter years, much as its CEO had endorsed wage and price controls in the Nixon administration. Quote, these insights are gradually helping us to understand why the very biggest businesses are such unreliable allies in the fight to preserve a free enterprise economy, oh. wrote editor Robert L. Bartley. I think this is a good time to like jump in and say what this great... Uh, editorial debate was back in the late 1970s. And believe it or not, people may not remember this. It was certainly before my time, but uh, apparently in like the free market libertarian right, there was a huge row about um, mandating that catalytic converters <laughs> are built into engines so that I guess they're more fuel efficient uh, for clean air. I didn't even realize that, uh, that these yeah. people got so hysterical about catalytic converters. I didn't even know there was a debate. I'm surprised that there was a debate, but apparently a huge fucking debate. Well, there was. Oh, fucking educate yourself, my friend. I mean, just, just to bullet point that debate, basically, like it was a clean air act and GM came out and said, okay, yeah, we'll have these catalytic converters. And then, you know, the right wing was arguing that this was a way for big business, i.e. GM, to like um, to accept these regulations so that they would have a leg up as a large monopoly company against smaller ones like Chrysler and also against uh, the tool and die manufacturers who would have to like struggle to, to create these catalytic converters really fast so they'd go into the engines. So it was, seen by, it was seen as a government action under the guise of, I guess, woke Clean Air Act stuff. Like that was the woke of that period, I suppose, uh, in order to mandate this from the, from the, this government action mandating that GM you know, spend money to put these catalytic converters in. And this was a proof that big business was not respecting the free market. They were using this monopoly power they had in order to thrust this down the throats of other companies who weren't you know, quite as prepared to spend the money to retool all of their uh, production. Yeah, you're you're betraying the principles of capitalism because you just want to make money. Yeah, right? exactly, exactly. How Nobody dare you. tell them what the principles of capitalism <laughs> are. This is, uh, I mean, go go on. There's a, there's a lot to unpack here. All right, all right. Well, here we are back at the same stand with prominent CEOs and businesses signing up for all the supposed virtue, virtue that progressive signaling. government has to offer. Virtue signal right? much. Yeah, they're virtue signaling. Uh, the virtue, the lectures on voting access have received the most attention, though it's notable how fact free most of these endorsements are. Can we stop like, for a second? I like think what? I think you're still on. You were still on the majority report when this happened. But what's the thing with voting access? It's like a it's a thing in Georgia that's happening with like corporations and Republicans. What, what What's going on there? Oh, I have no recollection of this whatsoever. OK. Uh, I'm going to say that there was a corporation that was like, hey, 
you should let black people vote. Uh, yeah. And that's them like being woke and virtue singing, which like, to be fair, is true. <laughs> like, yeah, sure. That is what they're doing. But if it's pure, like empty fucking virtue signaling, then why do you care? Yeah. If it's not doing anything to challenge, uh, you know, the actual like the barriers to voting because or, you know, let alone the logic s- of the market and white supremacy and all that stuff. A corporation took sides in a political battle. Can you believe it? That's what they're Mm-mm. so up in arms about. Mm-mm-mm. Yep. Here we go. They float above the messy but crucial details of electoral politics because they are essentially declarations of solidarity. Oof, that's a dirty they, word for the Wall Street Journal. That's right. They want to be on the on the side of the right or left thinking one or at least of their woke 20 something employees and consumers. Wow. So, Poor Zoomers and millennials are really getting uh, the treatment here from the boomers at the uh, Wall Street Journal, huh? It's mm-hmm. these woke 20 something so, employees and consumers who are run, basically running uh, the corporations at this point. Like they've, they've done like an insurgency, a long march through the institutions of corporate capitalism. Now yeah. it's the wokies who are running business. Can you believe it? Yeah, that's right. Um, So you don't have to wander too far into policy, however, to see what's really going on. Old fashioned self-interest. Nothing capitalist about that, right? (laughs) Yeah. CEOs know Democrats are in power, so they want to make sure they stay on the good side of the government that can hurt them. Damn, how dare they? If this means throwing over principles to mark out some political safe space for their business, so be it. What What principles principles are they talking about? The principles of not interfering in politics in this country? Is that the the principles they're throwing out? Or the principles (sighs) that black people shouldn't be stopped from voting? I don't I don't understand. I mean that's what it sounds like so far, but maybe uh maybe they'll use some more uh some more examples as we go through. Oh, here's one. Go on here. Okay. Uh, take Amazon CEO Jeff Bezos yeah. is, into, you know, noted uh, woke socialist. Yeah, famous uh, friend of the woke left. Take take Amazon CEO Jeff Bezos's endorsement of a higher corporate tax rate. All right, so we're pivoting now from voting to corporate taxes, which seems, you know, slightly more material, shall we say, than a company just saying, yeah, we believe in voting rights without, you know, actually doing anything about it. Sure. Um, for years, even decades, we listened as the titans of commerce told us how they needed a lower tax rate to stay competitive. Yeah, a mere three years after getting their wish, Mr. Bezos lets everyone know he's with the Biden tax program. Ooh. Mm. Mr. Bezos. Mm-hmm. He's falling in line with the woke Democrat army of communists like Biden. That's right. Mr. Bezos knows a higher tax rate would hurt Amazon much less than it would other companies. Yeah, that's fucking once again, that's a capitalism. Yeah, yeah. His his diversified company will benefit from R and D tax credits and especially from the Biden plan's tax credits for investments in green energy for its Ugh. server farms. Ooh, there's that green energy again. Yeah, that woke green energy. When will it end? <laughs> Mr. Bezos can buy some political goodwill by providing cover to Democrats on taxes while his company will benefit on the tax subsidy side of the ledger. How dare mm. Jeff Bezos and Amazon.com game the system like this? I thought we lived mm. in a free market. 
I thought there were certain principles at stake here in American capitalism. How dare Jeff Bezos act so nakedly in his own self-interest and politically? All right. It continues. Big businesses also know they can afford the higher costs of new regulation that smaller competitors cannot. Oh, it's, it's almost like this system uh, incentivizes for the bigger fish to eat the small fish. Yeah, it's almost like there's, I don't know, combination and concentration of capital. Hmm. Very similar mm. to that scary GM versus Chrysler thing with the catalytic converter. Because some things never change. Mm-hmm. That helps explain Big Oil's embrace of methane emission rules in the Obama years that hurt independent frackers, all those small mom and pop <laughs> fracking operations. <laughs> so sad for them, as well as putting a price on carbon now. Exxon Mobil can be on the side of the climate angels on carpet pricing, even as it benefits from Mr. Biden's subsidies for investing in carbon capture technology. Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm no I'm no defender of the Democrats, you know, despite what some people might think. But I can't help but read this, uh, in, in, you know, when they're talking about big businesses interest with the Democrats. A, it's like completely banal. But B, it's like if you're a capitalist. Um, would you, would you be happy with the, the four previous years of like the feckless chaos under Donald <laughs> Trump? Like if there's one thing that, uh, capital wants, it's to like have a clear view of, of what it imagines the future could be. And, uh, whatever Trump was, he wasn't a, uh, a, a stable steward of the capitalist economy, not in terms of policy and not in terms of regulation or even no, his, this the signals he was making. Yeah, this this is written from a perspective of pure ideology, which yes. is very, very strange. Yes, <laughs> like, ideology. Completely separated from the actual uh, directives and the need to uh, kind of manage the contradictions and crises brought about by capitalism, um, which we'll talk about more in a second, so that it can keep on going as a system. Yeah. Like maybe this person's just an accelerationist. I don't know. Maybe they're like secretly on our no, side. You know, no, you know what it is, is that going back to Adam Smith and then through David Ricardo, Jeremy Bentham, and then later on uh, John Maynard Keynes and uh, all Charles those herbs Schumpeter. that Marx owns in capital over <laughs> yeah. and over again. And, and the and the ones that came after the, the political economists after like Keynes and, and Schumpeter, too. There was this idea that, um, you know, monopoly capital. That uh, powerful corporations uh, put their thumb on the scale, and that uh, you know price the markets could only function rationally when you had like a, a bunch of small competing capitals, and so you know whether that happens through government intervention or whether it's something that magically happens, this is the way that capitalism, the free market, is supposed to work. The problem yeah. and what True Marx, capitalism has never been tried. It's literally exactly what it is. True <laughs> capitalism has never been tried. And then, this, and is you some, can, this is some libertarianism is astrology for men shit going on, I think, in these diseased minds. You can, I mean, you can um, go back to Marx, obviously, to talk about these tendencies towards combination and concentration of capital that are internal to the capital, to the, to the, uh, the laws of motion of capitalism. And these people are, are gesturing back to some halcyon age that never existed, where there were small, freely competing capitals, where there was creative destruction, where price signals were met, where, um, you know, everybody in the, in the capitalist marketplace had a chance to, uh, to get out there and start their own small corporation, small company. 
And it's just, it has literally never happened before. There's been times where the government has intervened, like under the, in the progressive period, but that was a long fucking time ago. Mm-hmm. That was a long fucking time ago. The, the, the U.S. government hasn't taken anti-monopoly seriously, at least since like the 1980s. Oh my God. Are you hearing these discord noises pop up? Cause I am. And I really hope they're not on the recording. Oh, maybe they are. Oh, God damn it. <laughs> uh, let me turn that off. But if they are on there, then uh, people can enjoy knowing that I'm very popular on discord. Oh, how do I turn them off? <laughs> I think they're on my computer. Are they? Yeah. I'm going to turn off enable desktop notifications. Oh, why don't you do that? Yeah, it's done. And we'll just leave that in in the episode so people can see how the sausage is made. Oh my God. Wait, can, how do I do that? I'm going to do that too, just to be on the safe side. Uh, you go to the discord, uh, user settings, then halfway down as notifications. And then at the top, I know this is, this is fucking riveting content. Oh yeah. I already people... had them turned off cause I'm a smart person. All right. Well, I got it done now. Let's All right, just great, keep that great in the job. episode. It's like you said, riveting content. Go on. Well, okay. There's only a little bit left of this article. So let's finish reading it and then continue to, um, you know, do our sick burns. And maybe we'll read the other one if we need to. I feel like we don't really need to, though. I feel like you summarized it pretty yeah, well. I summarized it. All right. Uh, or consider the rush by Big Finance. Capital B, capital F. Parentheses, parentheses, parentheses. (laughs) (laughs) To endorse environmental, there's that environment again, social and governance investing or ESG. This is a progressive cause to steer investment into politically favored projects like green energy and social justice. Mm. Yeah, all that all that woke social justice created by big finance. Well, I tell Uh, you, I mean, there is like a kernel of truth here in that capital, especially in the last year or so, um, has some segments of capital, I should say, have seen fit to make some sort of nods towards vague social justice, towards racial equality. Um, they're not like they say right here that they know that it's fake and they think that it's bad. So if it's fake and it's bad, then why would they care? Because this like, is, a- you know, cause they're against social justice. They, but they know that the corporations are kind of against it too. They're only pretending. So like, why would they even care that they're doing that? I mean, this is a creed core by one fraction of capital against another. Right. So this is anti big business, this op-ed and it's anti-tech, but it's clearly pro extractive industries. It's, it's <laughs> yeah. clearly pro. I mean, the, like, the amount that the environment appears as like a fucking bugaboo, as if this is just like another kind of woke social justice signaling issue and not, you know, an existential threat to the survival of the human race. But uh, yeah, I mean, like we're, we're going to talk to about uh, Biden's big stimulus later on. And that represents, of course, like the, the left wing of capital. This op-ed represents the right wing of capital. And each of them, it's not a perfect one to one, but they match up based on what the varying interests of capital is in this country and across the, the globe uh, in terms of where they're accumulating and, and under what conditions. So you have mm-hmm. a creed de corps from the right wing of capital here saying like, no regulation, none of this green energy shit. And by the way, we're going to virtue signal ourselves about wokeness because we just have mm-hmm. a sort of like, I don't know, constitutional hate of, um, of all things uh, civil rights or, or all things protest. Um, but then if you flip it over and you read, say, the Financial Times, 
Uh, it's it's the left wing of capital, and so they're all for uh, the voting rights stuff. Uh, they're all for big tech having the ability to regulate itself. They're all for clean energy. They see in the pages of, of the Financial Times many good investment opportunities, you know, to in within green energy. And so, like this is a this is a a battle within the capitalist class, essentially being mm-hmm. presented to us ideologically. It's turned into this ideological battle between left and right. But honestly, it, it comes down to like the particular real naked material self-interests of individual capitalists in blocks trying to compete to make sure that in this monopoly capitalist era, when the state has so much interest and so much power to sort of like move the, the needle one way or the other in terms of policy and who's going to benefit and who isn't, it's their attempt to, you know, in order to convince us, the peons, I guess us, the voters, presumably, that's what they see us as, uh, to, to take one side of capitals, one side of capital against the other. Right. And so like, if you read this as a Democrat, you think this is horrendous. If you read this as a Republican, you think it's great. But in neither case, does it have anything to do with the working class? Does it have anything to do with us whatsoever, except to the extent that the what happens with these policies runs downstream to us and affects us in the workplace? That's right. Um, Burn it all down. Fuck them all. Let's finish this, though, because I have some comments as well all right uh blackrock ceo larry fink oh my god Mm. (laughs) triple parentheses (laughs) but just like put a gold star emoji before and after every word in that sentence uh like jesus christ blackrock ceo larry fink is an enthusiast and guess who will benefit if biden administration regulators set new requirements for esg disclosure or investing esg lets blackrock charge higher investment fees than it can charge for index funds that buy the entire market yeah so it's Hmm. a it's an incentive i mean governments do this all the time and all sorts of different things personally i think ESG, environmental, social, and governance investing is fucking stupid. It's like trying to take like uh, what, like moral consumption and, and do it in stocks. <laughs> I think it's really dumb, but let's not pretend that all sorts of investment for all sorts of incentives for different investments aren't constantly made by the state in order to like make things happen in society. Stupid like a Jewish fox named Larry Fink. <laughs> I, uh, while these examples are new, the impulse is old. The Chamber of Commerce supported Hillary Care in 1993 mm. until it imploded. Because <laughs> they stood to make so much fucking money off of Hillary Care. If it hadn't been such a disaster, the pharma, the pharmas and the fucking uh, healthcare and the insurance companies would have been so happy with it because of all the insane bureaucracy it created and its ability to ensure that they profit off of it. So like it's it's just not another example of the same fucking thing. Well, fast forward in time. Big Pharma lent its support and some drug price savings to Obamacare in return for being spared more strict price controls. Drug companies are back on the political menu again this Meets year. Back on the which, menu, boys. <laughs> which illustrates the limits of an appeasement strategy. There is no permanent protection in politics. All right. So basically the big government liberals are like Hitler. Yes. In this, in this analogy. And uh, 
the drug companies are like, you know, all the countries that just did try to try to appeasement with Hitler until eventually didn't work and he did the Holocaust. Yeah, yeah. That's that's what I get from that too. I love there's no permanent protection in politics. There's no permanent protection for one particular faction of the capitalist class. But you better bet in American and in like bourgeois politics in general, at the end of the day, there is always permanent protection for capital. Always for capital in general. I mean, why, why do they think they're doing any of this? Like, they think that the Democrats are, like, driven by ideology, I guess. Whereas they're, they're, whereas like, they're not. They're I can't like even the, finish that sentence because we all, we all know who they serve, yeah, folks. I mean, the Democrats are, um, you know, are, are deeply imbued with ideology just in the same way that the Republicans are. You know, it's just a yeah, different side just, of the fraction of It's not the kind capital. they think. Yeah. Oh, here, we're, I'm going to bring it home. Bring it all right. Home. We aren't saying these CEOs don't also have some higher motives <laughs> and self-interest is no sin in our moral lexicon. Like, again, what the fuck are they so talking about? What are you about? saying then? What, what exactly like, are you saying if self-interest is no sin in your moral lexicon? Like what, <laughs> what do they think the higher motives of capitalism are? Uh, the, 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 the higher motives of capitalism are, I guess, not making money, but defending the free market system. I see. Right? So like okay. individual capitalists and individual capitals, I suppose, are supposed to be are supposed to um, resist the urge to act, uh, to, to compel the government to do something in particular for them to help their profits out. Instead, they're supposed to like live within this real capitalism has never been tried hyper competitive capitalism that somehow they imagine has existed sometime in history. Okay. I'll back up a little. Uh, this is funny. We aren't say I'm going to, I'm going to read it again because it's just so it's just such diseased thinking that I think it bears repeating. What do you got? We aren't saying these CEOs don't also have some higher motives and self-interest is no sin in our moral lexicon. The point is that corporations look out first and foremost for their own (laughs) interests. Yes, that is the point. That is literally literally the point of capitalism. And that often means collaborating with government for narrow purposes that aren't always in the public interest. So Uh, a public interest. Wall Street Journal editorial board, come on the Antifada. Yeah. So the public interest does exist for them. I guess the public interest is like a higher power above profit making. Uh, that's, That's news to me. Like what, what exactly is in the public interest about a free and unregulated uh, neoliberal hell market? Tell me. They, they would literally argue that that is in the public interest that like a, (sighs) like a perfect market situation or as close to as perfect as we could get uh, using the invisible hand will of course benefit everybody at the end. And that's where, again, they run into um, the, 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 the arms, the, uh, the loving arms of their own ideology. Oh my God. It's not like the working class is getting fisted by the invisible hand every day, non-consensually fisted, and, and I the, should say. And, and the crazy thing is that these people are coming at it from the right wing of capital, but the left wing of capital thinks the same thing, that collaborating with government for narrow purposes isn't in the public interest. They just have a different conception of what the public interest is. They're simply doing what Wall Street Journal is asking them to do, which is like to have a higher uh, public interest in social justice and in like, what I guess, clean energy policy. They basically should just be saying like, 
we're right and they're wrong. <laughs> that's like, that's what this could come down to, but it's got yeah, a lot well, of words in between. Well, at, at least there's a kind of internal coherence of the left wing of capital, right? As, as we'll discuss in a minute, you know, the, the recognition that um, crises are going to happen and it's going to take the action like, of the, the managers, the managers of capital, that's their job, right? The managers of the capitalist economy have to take certain actions at various points in time to shore up the capitalist economy and make sure that these cycles of accumulation are able to continue without, you know, a generalized collapse. Um, and, and it also means recuperating social justice movements when when they pop up, when necessary, which it has been very effective at throughout history. Yeah, 100 percent, 100 percent. This is um, this is some special pleading right here mm. on on behalf of the. Uh, One might even say it's cope. It's cope. And when, and that's not, that does not stand for critique of political economy. That's the good cope. (laughs) This is the kind of cope that you would put next to the word seething. You would just post seething at them on Twitter.com. Oh, you, you mad. I'm just picturing like, I really barely understand these memes, these like image memes that go around, but like the one who's like, He's like crying, but he has a, a mask of not caring. Yes, There's like yeah. a medium face mask over and he's like crying underneath. You know, the one I'm yeah, talking about. I do. Of course. Classic. And that's uh, it. You Wall Street <laughs> Journal. So let's let's read the final paragraph, shall Let, we? I just a short comment before that. We had the notification issues and I'd like to point out now that the uh, drummer next door has started practicing. So if you thought this was going to be an episode that we get away from the distractions and sounds around (laughs) us, you were wrong. So enjoy the funky beats of uh, dude next door. Oh my God. All right. I I give up. (laughs) It's just one of those days. I swear to God, my life is becoming a goddamn Kathy cartoon on so many levels. Stained cover of just one of those days. Oh my God. Shit's fucking sick, dude. They used to close with that every time when I was on tour with them. (laughs) It's a real Uh, new metal episode here. Sorry. Shall we go on? Go on, go on. This is the reason. Oh, they're getting they're getting so maudlin. <laughs> like, imagine being this fucking upset about an inanimate thing called the free market. Yeah, <laughs> it really doesn't care about you. Like, how how dare you? How dare you insult my favorite thing? Like, at least America as an idea is like. I mean, that's bad too. Actually, well, <laughs> this, is the, this is the Wall Street. Uh, it's all bad. This is the Wall Street Journal, right? And they like they are literally literally doing what um, financial media and also economics, of course, is supposed to do, which is to run cover for the capitalist class, right? That's literally all that, and we know this because we've listened to a ton of episodes about it, and like we've read our Marx and stuff. Like the reason why there has to be a critique of political economy is because left to the devices of these fucking assholes in the Wall Street Journal or Harvard fucking Business School, all you're ever gonna get is people running running interference for the capitalist system and creating these sort of ideological, I don't know, algorithmic arguments and bad faith uh, columns like this in order to make people think that there's something else at stake besides the perpetuation of the capitalist system. And that that's all that's that, that that's all that's happening. That's all that's ever happening in economics. But I love how they're staking out the moral high ground here. Oh, so yeah, totally. let's let's uh let's bring it in. This is the reason these columns 
Is this the reason these <laughs> columns? <laughs> I'm just picturing them crying like yeah. Jordan Peterson tears right now. <laughs> have always distinguished between free markets and the interests of business. We have supported big business, including Amazon and Exxon, against the depredations of big government. We will again when warranted. But we're I'm under no some, illusions. Some violin big- swelling in the background as like the Wall Street Journal editorial board is like walking <laughs> at you from the sun carrying big spears. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but we're under no illusions that big business is a reliable friend of capitalism. Damn. Capitalism, my best friend. Yeah. For that, we'll have to count on competition. And what we hope is still the common sense of the American people. That this is this mic is, drop. This is an incredible, <laughs> incredible column. This is an amazing editorial. This I think really does show like um, how uh, baseless all of this argument, all these arguments are around it when faced with like actual like the the social world and the material world around us. It's merely like special pleading for a particular type of political organization of the economy against another one. It's it's so diseased. I mean, what do they think? What like what kind of system are they laying out here? Like what what would actually make them happy? Because it seems to me like they are separating out this. Um, I mean, I guess maybe I'm like trying to make coherence where there is none, but it seems like they're kind of separating out um, tech and global finance capital. Mm-hmm. You know, these like international shadowy cosmopolitan, yeah. ruthless, triple parentheses, uh, woke yeah. <laughs> kinds of capital, right? From this like good, down home, healthy, uh, domestic, yeah. industrial capital. And I'm like, hmm, where have I heard this one before? <laughs> They're literally doing right populism. And we've heard that before, of course, of course, in like the 1930s in Germany, uh, we, we know where this, this sort of, um, this sort of thinking, this sort of analysis and understanding of the capitalist economy goes not, I'm not saying they're Nazis at the wall street journal editorial board, but they're part of a tradition of trying to isolate these particular aspects of, of, of capital, of the, the circuits of capital, the, the financial, and also of course the international ones and say that they're bad versus, of course, the good national uh, industrial capital. It's a classic move. And it's one that you see, like, tons of people. You do see Tucker, Tucker Carlson doing. This is, like, well within the mainstream of the Republican Party because it's, mm-hmm. a, it's at, at the end of the day, it's a misapprehension, a misunderstanding of the fact that capital has to be international and there has to be a monetary finance component to it in order for capital to realize itself. Like you can't, you, you can't turn the clock back. You can't create a, a perfect free market, you know, like Adam Smith or David Ricardo would have envisioned. And you also can't pull back from the international arena without massive, massive disruption to that same national and industrial capital that you're trying to support in the first place. It just, it simply doesn't work. And not, not to mention like crying about the consolidation that occurs under capitalism is also uh a little ridiculous, right? Because that is another characteristic of capitalism. That's what it does. It fucking consolidates and the big fish eat the smaller ones. It's not a static system, right? Capital is money in motion. It's a dynamic system with constant um, 
competition and like growth and shrinkage shrinkage yeah. uh you know so like if you're gonna it, it, it's almost like the other side of the coin from the kind of left populists who want to set back the clock to some kind of golden age of yeah. capitalism with like you know with important differences but they're both they're fucking their fantasies well i'm like not very articulate today but no no but like the the point stands right which is that in order to fight the right wing of capital we should not become the left wing of capital in order to make sure that like the worst depredations of the republicans uh don't uh don't uh get foisted upon the american people we can't become democrats right these yeah. are two sides of the same coin and I think a lot of people made that mistake when they were talking about voting for Biden, uh, where they were saying, like, actually, Biden's good. And we'll talk about what Biden has done because it's interesting. But, like, becoming the left wing of capital is not the not a good idea. Like, we need yeah. to have an, an independent proletarian politics that breaks out of this duopoly. The duopoly isn't only Republicans and Democrats. It's also the left wing and the right wing of capital. And we yeah. have to reject and both of them. And the enemy of my enemy is not necessarily my friend, right? Yeah. Like, just because the right wing of capital wants to keep the majority of people from voting doesn't mean, I mean, especially black and brown people, obviously, but like, I, I feel like they'd be okay with these, like, you know, property requirements to vote or whatever. Ju just because they want to keep the working oh, class from voting, poor doesn't from mean, voting. Yeah. doesn't mean that the working class can vote its way to a better world. Yeah, of course. This all happens like within the, the narrow framework of bourgeois politics and about what sort of powers and policies are going to be distributed uh, one way or the other. Like, I don't know, man. Like, I, I feel like, um, I, I feel a little dis disappointed in a lot of people I've seen talking online when they're trying to like say, well, you know, Bezos, at least it's woke. You know, like, or at least like, um, said that. at least like Coca-Cola, liberals say it all the time. Like, you know, I, I'm no fan of Coca-Cola, but they really stood up for black and brown people in Georgia this week. It's oh like, my God. if you buy into that, if you buy into <sighs> the idea that these giant capitalist enterprises have any interest whatsoever, any real sincere interests in, in morality or social justice or progressivism, then you're deluded. Uh, to use a mm -hmm. Michael Brooks phrase, you're, you're deluded. You're completely deluded. Yeah. And, well, and then, this is something that people need to break out of themselves. Well, then liberals will say, well, if these uh, fucking diversity programs at Coca-Cola or, you know, bourgeois politics or voting or whatever, uh, if they don't pose a threat to the, the world order, if they can't help the working class, then why is the right trying so hard to oppose them. And I think in some cases it's cause they're just fucking stupid idiots who don't know anything. Um, it's, or it's they're just leaning ideology. into the culture wars. Yeah, they're leading into the culture wars cause yeah. they have nothing else. No, it's sniff ideology because yeah, they have nothing else and both sides really have nothing else. I mean, despite yeah. the stimulus that we saw and I'll, I'll critique that in a minute, like, the, the bounds of what politics can actually do to affect people's lives, to change the direction of, say, like the economy of the country are narrowing and narrowing and narrowing to the point that the Democrats can now justify their own rule by pointing to the, um, the culture war on the right and saying we have to protect you know, this country against this shit. When on both sides, it's mostly just a, 
um, a virtue signal. It's mostly just creating fake sort of spectacular debates and arguments that don't really have much to do with actual people's lives in this country, but it's really good at people getting people outraged. I mean, look at abortion, yeah. right? Abortion. And of course we support a women's woman's right to choose. And that's something that people should fight for. And that's, that's something that obviously, you know, we do not want to see threatened. However, like the abortion um, debate, the Republicans don't want to end it. Republicans want to have abortion be like as small and um, as unavailable as possible, but they would hate to see it banned because every two to four to six years, it gives them an opportunity to go out there and, and get Republican voters to the polls to try to defend the unborn baby, you know, and mm-hmm. it's just, it's, it's a total sham because real politics can't be done anymore because of the scope of what the government can actually do in this massive behemoth of this like stagnating capitalist economy has shrunk and shrunk and shrunk and shrunk until those culture war issues are all that's really left. It's all that's left now. Yeah. Nancy Pelosi literally said we're the party of identity now. Like she actually said that one day. I, you look it up if you don't believe me. (laughs) I don't have the exact quote, but that's pretty much what she said. So All, all you need to do if you're the party of identity is, uh, even if you're an 80 year old white woman, from San Francisco is put on a kente cloth and kneel down, you know, in the Capitol building, right? And you've fulfilled about all that a politician can do in this instance, right? Which is virtue signal. (laughs) And they're just leaning right into it. And we live in such a diseased world that like something like that just, uh, it it takes on a life of its own and like has a a feedback loop to make politics even more mystified. Like I heard from someone uh, I don't even remember who this is, but it's not important. Who had a family member who thought that the Democrats were like basically black nationalists who oh. want to abolish the police. Sure. And the reason they thought that was because of the Kente cloth thing. Wow. So it works. It was a very effective political signaling for both sides. Uh, yeah. And, and things just get mystified further and further in an infinite feedback loop of, uh, of, uh, of idiocy, but um, I mean, let's talk about this is a good place to transition to um, the Biden administration and what um, and this massive stimulus and this massive infrastructure plan. You've heard about this, right? I have indeed. And I have been wondering, along with yourself, uh, what is going on here? Because it does seem like we know we know why they're not doing it right. We know they're not doing it to. Uh, to, to bring about socialism or help the working, empower the working class or, you know, bring about racial justice or whatever. So why now are the managers of the capitalist economy trying in response to crisis um, as opposed to past crises where they very much tried the neoliberal route? Why are they trying some kind of fo- some some form of uh neo-Keynesian stimulus, which is to say uh, an increase in social spending and, uh, you know, not just on uh, corporations, but on uh, like some like actual bottom up social social spending, social stimulus. Like, why are they doing this? Uh, In a word, desperation. I mean, I think if you look at the last 12, 13 years since the TARP bailout, under uh, Bush and Obama and the bailing out of the banks and the refusal to bail out homeowners and uh, the kind of doubling down that Obama did on the economy um, back in that crisis. 
I think like the left wing of capital, I think right now is more coherent. I think the left wing of capital is smarter. It understands more than the right wing that the issue isn't that we have enough, we don't have enough like free market competition, that there's too many regulations. They realize that not just with climate change, but with like the economy and the rate of profit, that something has to be done because they're starting to recognize that 12, 13 years of stagnation is not a good thing. And they're trying to figure out a way out of that. They saw the mistake uh, that happened under Obama. They think, okay, well, we'll, we'll do the right thing. We'll try something else this time. And it's, it's interesting because <clears throat> the IMF, and this is really fascinating. I have an article here from the, uh, from the financial times here. It's, um, in opinion, global economy, a new Washington consensus is born. The conversion by the IMF and World Bank to support the activist state would put Saul of Tarsus to shame. This is by Martin Sanbu. And I'm not going to read the whole thing, but it basically talks about this sea change in these giant multinational institutions, the same one that uh, in the 1990s and in Seattle in 1999, and then you know somewhat into the Bush years, although the the anti-globalization movement was pushed back, of course, by 9-11 and the wars of Iraq or whatever. But these were austerity-driven institutions, right? These multinationals, the WTO, the IMF, and the World Bank were pushing austerity on uh, developing capitalist countries, but also ensuring that this sort of neoliberal orthodoxy that we saw under Reagan, we saw under Clinton, we of course saw under Bush and saw under Obama, was the Washington consensus, was the thing that got pushed in the halls of power. And now all of a sudden, you know, the IMF itself has shifted gears and is in in support of the sort of measures that Biden's doing, the $1.9 trillion uh, stimulus bill and the $2 trillion that they want to spend on a, an infrastructure bill in this country. And they're for this, not only in the United States, but across the world. They have had a Saul of Tarsus moment. But the problem with this article, and I read it multiple times, is that at least Saul of Tarsus on the road to Damascus like had a reason. He saw a vision right, that made him follow Jesus. And uh, he had a reason, like a real reason, when he saw that vision uh, to become Paul, you know, the, the Apostle Paul. In this article, it's bizarre because they don't explain anything, any of the reason why uh, the IMF would change their mind on this. And it's interesting that they're trying to, like, I guess, sidestep that. They're just like, okay, well, you know, we've decided differently. We've decided the complete opposite than what we have for the last 50 years. But I think they're embarrassed, and I think that they, I think that they've seen now that whatever they've been doing hasn't been working, and so it's time to desperately switch gears, right, and try to change up and try to apply some sort of stimulus because they don't want the global economy to go the route of, say, Japan, which has been in a thirty-year uh, stagnant depression with low rates of profit, uh, high unemployment, and all sorts of, um, you know, issues in the economy. So that's so. Yeah, that's pretty much it, I think. The IMF and the Biden administration are all desperate right now, and they're trying to do things that have been done in the past that worked. Right? They're trying to do the 1930s, the 1970s stuff. But what they're importantly not trying to do, and I think this is the big takeaway from, from both Biden bills, is they're not trying to upset the relations of production. They're not trying to necessarily uh, change anything about uh, the power dynamic between capital and labor. What they're trying to do is they're doing a, like a non-recurring one-time shot in the arm. That's what these stimuluses are, a one-time shot in the arm that leaves very little institutional legacy 
and does very, very little to change the course and to change the power structures within capitalism, but they're desperate, so they're just throwing money at the situation. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting to me because generally in the past, um, these kinds, these kinds of, uh, I don't know, Keynesian, social democratic uh, policies, measures, whatever you want to call them, have been done in response to a growing amount of pressure from below, mm -hmm. right? And a growing, um, you know, a workers movement, a working class movement, the threat of revolution, all that stuff in, in, in a way that almost makes me wary. Uh, I mean, it does make me wary of social democratic politics and of left populist politics and of unions movements, you know, mm -hmm. because it's so easily recuperated by capital. Uh, it, like, like, when people union, when workers unionize a company, you know, uh, oftentimes they say we're doing it because we love this company and it's going to make this company stronger. And, you know, a lot of them are just saying it because they fucking have to. Right. But some of them probably believe it. Yeah, right? in some and cases that, it's true. It sets like a, uh, a standard for collective bargaining that gives like a certain sense of the future to capital. They understand that they're going to have a ready supply of workers, that the union's going to provide them, and that there are certain rules of engagement. And so it actually helps them. It's comforting in some cases for capital. Yeah, and, and it has... You know, it has forced the managers of capitalism to basically uh, do these measures to sort of uh, release some of the pressure and, and some of the uh, relieve some of the immiseration that was driving people to question the entire system. Whereas now, I think we can all agree that that pressure from below just isn't there. Yeah. Like, sorry if that sounds doomer of me. But it's it's not like class power. The class power is not fucking there. Um, it's so not there, there but, in the but, same way, certainly. Go on. Like, like, because that's always been a safeguard in the past, but that's not there anymore. So now they have to do it themselves yeah. in sort of a kind of top-down technocratic way. Yep. And that is kind of interesting to me. No, it's it's fascinating. And one thing that occurred to me when I was thinking about this is that. What Biden, if he passes this $2 trillion infrastructure bill, along with the $1.9 trillion, rather, so almost $4 trillion, I think Biden is going to be able to push through more um, Keynesian anti-austerity uh, stimulus than Bernie Sanders president, as president could ever do. You know, this uh, is coming from the so center sad, but from I the think you're right. of the Democratic Party, and it's only possible because mainstream figures like Biden, who's been who was in Senate for how many fucking decades, right, has the power to sort of compel the Democrat senators to do something that they probably think is kind of crazy. You know, they think, oh, well, we've been used to austerity for so long. We've been used to relying on markets and neoliberal fundamentalism. But it's coming from the heart of the Democratic Party. And in essence, it's coming from the heart of the left wing of capital, which, again, you say that there hasn't been a pushback. And it's certainly true that and I was surprised by this. I'll be completely honest. You know, when the Bernie Sanders thing popped off in 2015, I thought to myself, this is a sort of alienated political representation of a new cycle of struggles that's going to look like the 1930s or the 1970s. It's going to look like mass unionized working class action. As it turns out, it didn't. The things that we got were, of course, Donald Trump and the chaos that that brought, the sort of disintegration of the American political mainstream and the disaggregation of a bunch of like really upset 
uh, Trump voters who are just completely turned off by the entire system and wanted to burn it down. You got that on the one hand, and then increasingly over the last several years, and you saw this in the United States last year, but we've seen it all over the globe, from Haiti to Chile to Turkey to Greece to like all over the world, China, we've seen this mass wave of riots, right? Which are not an organized form of uh, rebellion. They're not like the same as a unionization drive, but they're really real. We live in an age of riots right now. So I think the smarter fraction of the capitalist class, which in the 1970s, I should add, was uh, the right wing of capital was smarter. They realized that something like neoliberalism had to be pushed through. They seized the initiative and they did it. In the 70s, it was the right wing of capital that was doing what was necessary in order to safeguard the capitalist system. And I think the left wing of capital now is the more is the smarter well, did one. It, did it safeguard the capitalist system? It though? did for no. 40 years. It did for, it did for it two years. It was a temporary de- stopgap measure that's all they could that ever has do. now demonstrably failed. That's all they can ever do and that's all they ever do. That's the secret that nobody tells you you is that it's all ad hoc right you have these different ideas that are floating around in the managers of society's heads that come from these different interests right and in one instance it's the right-wing neoliberal turn in this instance they're thinking okay like a new post-keynesian turn will finally be the solution for the economy and who knows maybe it'll last 40 years i doubt it i don't think it's going to work because i don't think for the reasons i'll outline it does enough structurally to save the capitalist class but Mm. They're trying it within their ideological bounds and within the bounds of what power they have to shape society. They are, they are trying. They're giving it their best go right now. So here's a question. I don't want to get us too far off track, right? One of the long running arguments that I had with Sam on the majority report was about the neoliberal turn of the 1970s mm-hmm. and whether it was in fact necessary to save the capitalist system and keep it going. And that's why they did it. Or if it was just the result of, you know, some bad people with bad ideas somehow getting into power at that exact moment in history and not some other moment and making rules that made things nicer for themselves and their friends in, you know, corporate sector. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's clearly some combination of both. But the drive of like ideas, they don't just come out of nowhere, right? And it's not like um, one person sits down and figures out if we implement neoliberal policies, if we empower the markets, and if we break up the power of labor, then, you know, it's, it's going to be, it's going to give us 40 years of like strong, healthy neoliberal capitalism. Like they already believed <clears throat> for good reason that workers had too much power. They figured out a series of different policies to erode workers' power. And as it turned out, they were right that you could get this temporary boom for 40 years, of course, with low profit rates still, but a huge amount of financialization and globalization that made up for those low profits. And so like the, it seems like um, in retrospect, it seems all oh, these people are brilliant, but they were merely following their own directives to like accumulate and smash the workers up. It just turned out to be the right policy for that era. You could have another 40 years of accumulation after that. You know, it's like it's impossible to to separate their naked self-interest from the actual like automatic subject of capital needing to break through these limitations imposed upon it in the post-war period. Yeah, I mean, I guess my basic question is still was neoliberalism necessary to keep the capitalist system going or was there some other like keynesian solution like um like like left left liberals want you to believe keynesian had had shot its load man keynesianism had tried everything 
They'd thrown everything at it from price controls to uh, regulation, deregulation, and, and all sorts of policies, and they could not figure it out. They couldn't figure it out. And so, like, they, let's try something different. And they went the complete opposite way. And, um, you know, it worked because that's, I guess, what capital needed at that time to break through those limitations. Okay. One more question on this subject, because I know you want to get to the Biden uh, spending bill, which is very Uh, important. I'm almost done with it. Like, um, this is another argument that I had. Like, it's really, I don't know. It's really frustrating at times, but also sort of interesting at times to argue with uh, a liberal about these kinds of things. You're not going to have Sam to kick around anymore. (laughs) Or vice versa. Um, But... I mean, I, but, but sometimes it's, it's like, it's a little bit like talking to a child and that they'll ask you a question that you hadn't like a very, very, very basic question about some basic premise that you haven't thought about in a really, really, really long time. And it forces you to think about it all over again, you know? Yeah, that's good. <laughs> and, um, I, and his question was basically, cause I, you know, I showed him the chart of the line going down the line being the rate of profit and uh, in, in the manufacturing sector of, you know, the, the world's biggest economies. Mm-hmm. And I'm like explaining, this is why they did these things. This is why they did the neoliberalism because they needed to make the line go back up. Yeah. And his question was, well, what do I care if, about the rate of profit? You know, <laughs> what if profit could, what if they, we could just let it be shitty <laughs> and that, that, that will be fine for everyone. No, <laughs> that's hilarious and naive that's really cute i mean all social production and reproduction literally of of human beings relies on the profit rate relies on the accumulation and expansion of capitals the accumulation of capitals to say that oh well that doesn't really matter we could just leave that be is basically consigning like millions upon billions of people to like stagnation because it's not like the capitalists are gonna like give up more if they're getting less. So the idea that, 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 that the rate of profit is some somehow outside of human life, like it's just an, an abstract number is, uh, yeah, it's kind of naive and cute in its own weird way. <laughs> that's, that's what I'm saying. It's kind of adorable, but it like, it forces you to just like restate your basic, uh, your basic ideas, Capital, you know, the basic building blocks, your basic framework for understanding the world in a way that might be helpful. Capital doesn't produce commodities qua commodities. Capital doesn't give a fuck about producing actual things. You know, it, it produces the commodities in order to get the, the surplus out of them, in order to make profits off of it. If capitalists could get away with, like, producing no commodities and letting 8 billion people starve, they'd be happy to do it. But it just so happens that, like, commodity production is the one way that you can get that surplus. And so co- capitalists go into, like, the financial sphere. They go into, like, globalized trade. They go into the carry trade. They go into all these different realms outside of production. But at the end of the day, it always redounds back into the hidden abode of production because that's the only place that surplus is created and the only way that they can reproduce themselves as a class and as long as we have capitalism the working class ourselves cannot reproduce ourselves if the capitalists don't reproduce themselves it's very very important unless we're going to go towards communism which we should Uh, but in the meantime (laughs) let's put this let's put this in a much simpler way for people which is to say when there is a crisis of profitability when there is a financial crisis, um, the worst effects are going to redound upon the workers Always. and the poor. Always. And because guess what? As long as we have capitalism, workers need jobs and they therefore on some level have a stake in the success of the bosses and of the system. 
right? Because when things are bad, you think they're just going to keep employing all those people just to be nice. Fuck no. And, and like reading Capital has really uh, helped me understand a little better why, the, why these kinds of crises Capital? keep happening. You think everybody should read it? Every listener out there? Oh, absolutely. There we go. Like, there's, there's so many things that sound crazy when I say them to people who haven't read this book or, you know, aren't familiar with the concepts. But like, yeah, no, everyone should read it and like see he because Marx really shows his work and you can see for yourself why this shit doesn't work on a very, very basic level. I mean, I don't want to take us too far afield, but yeah, don't ruin I just the read, ending uh, of Capital for us. I won't, I won't spoil the ending, but, but just like the boom, the way the boom and bust cycle works, right. Is that uh capitalists, they want to compete against one another. And one way they do that is by introducing novel kinds of automation, right. But uh, it, the tactic, the advantage it gives you competitively, if you're a capitalist, you have a new kind of machinery is very temporary because they all, it spreads to everyone. They all get it. Um, and uh, should I go down there's, this road? Sure. There's an like, averaging if you, out of the rate of profit. If you if you have okay, so you got a factory, right? You got some workers. So you got a hundred workers, and you get some machinery that makes them twice as productive. Um, you can fire half the workers, and the remainder are more productive. Uh, but and, and and you have a different ratio of capital invested, right? Before, if you had a uh, say a million dollars or a hundred percent of your capital was invested in workers. Now you got 50% of it invested in workers and 50% of it invested in machinery. Mm -hmm. I'm trying not to use any jargon here. So no, you're doing um, good. Go on. Yeah. So the ratio of workers to machinery or what we call variable capital, which is human labor power to fixed capital, which is machinery, uh, factories, stuff like that, that has changed. So in a, in a boom cycle with all of these producers trying to compete to lower the price, produce more, 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 cheaper, 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 mm -hmm. in a boom cycle, um, it could lead to job growth, even though the ratio of capital invested in workers to capital invested in machinery has gone down. Right. Um, you could be opening up 10 new factories. So it, it doesn't matter. The absolute level of employment is going up. Right. But, you know, there comes a time amid all of this overproduction, you produce more than the market can bear. And then people aren't buying your shit. And then guess what? You got to fire some people. And at the same time, those people now cannot afford to buy shit. And that leads to a greater crisis of overproduction. That's a, that's a, that's a boom and bust cycle. And it really, uh, helped, it helped me understand too, why, uh, why wars happened, right? Because yeah. world war one and world war two destroyed a lot of factories, like a lot of fixed capital got destroyed and kind of reset the clock on this cycle of uh, boom and bust. And, uh, the, uh, yeah, the investment in, in new shit. Am I making sense? No, you're making let me and let me pull this uh, back into the historical here. One thing that you could do if, say, you're the United States and you have this like massive industrial power after the Second World War and you've seen what happened in the 1930s when capital goes into crisis. One thing you can do to regulate that 
is not just create all sorts of like boundaries of what capital could do and find all different ways to prop up individual corporations internationally. You can also spend billions upon billions of dollars every year on armaments and weapons. I mean, this was the Cold War was an ult- the ultimate stimulus program. It basically kept like large parts of American manufacturing going and productive. Like even though there wasn't a hot war with the Soviet Union, it was a massive stabilizing force on, um, on the American economy. And it still is to this day. So what World War II and the post-war period teaches us is that something different, something changed in the relationship between capital and the state. And the state took much more of an interest in keeping capital propped up through that. And that didn't change in the neoliberal era. There was a different method in order to stabilize the system then, like creating markets and ensuring the international spread of you know, the dollar and American goods. But like at, at base, it was still the state uh, propping up capital and stimulating capital all the time, which is the light in which we should look at the Biden stimulus, right? The Biden stimulus is taking place solely in the sphere of consumption, right? It's not changing anything about the productive relationships. It's putting some money into infrastructure, which will actually help many companies that ship their things uh, here and there. But it is fundamentally like a one-time shot in the arm to the economy, purely in the realm of consumption. Um, And I would like to read now a quote from um, Paul Maddox Sr. He wrote a book called Marx and Keynes, uh, what was it? Limits of the Marx and Keynes uh, Matic. I just I, I want to see this. Oh, limits of the mixed economy. There we go. So I was when I was thinking about Biden, I, I went in and opened this book up to try to figure out what like a sincere and brilliant Marxist like Paul Maddox Sr. was saying about this in the 1970s, confronting an era where it seemed like this stability, this Keynesian consensus had stabilized capital and that there was never going to be any crises again. He writes, uh, interventions in the economy have been forced on capitalist governments by circumstances beyond their control. These interventions do not point to a reformative tendency in capitalism. What they do reveal is that the system finds it more and more difficult to solve capitalist problems by strictly capitalist means. In a consistent capitalist ideology, the new economics spells not success but failure. To be sure, government interventions may postpone or mitigate a crisis, but the need for such intervention only bears witness to the depths of the crisis situation. Boom. There you have it. The ruling class desperate, absolutely desperate, in order to keep the social relations of capital going, in order to keep accumulation happening, are desperately trying to use non-capitalist means, interventions outside, in order to prop up the capitalist order. And it shows the depths of the crisis that they're willing to put $4 trillion at throws $4 trillion at it. So I, I think that's the way that we should look at it, look at the stimulus here. It doesn't change much about how, it doesn't change the profitability of American capital that much at all, right? It's not going to change much about the manufacturing rate of profit in the United States or elsewhere. It's this one-time stimulus in order to try to get people buying again. But people buying stuff isn't the main problem right now. It's that profits aren't high enough on things that are being produced. I thought we were pushing Biden to the left. Yeah, that's really funny. So many have people been saying that pushing Biden to the left? Oh, they have. Yeah, I don't think I mean, they... not people that we are particularly uh, friends with right now. But you know, 
people say i think it's a common refrain among left liberals like elizabeth warren types yeah i mean it's hard to say what um what relationship internal Democrat politics, because that's what Bernie was. It was, it was internal to the Democratic Party, basically. Uh, what effect that had on Biden and company's decision-making. I mean, it may have had some effect, I'm not sure. But again, like this is what Bernie Sanders would have done. And you have to imagine that there were policy thinkers within the Democratic Party, within the left wing of capital, that realized like they, that they couldn't repeat 2008 again. And one of the fascinating things about the Biden stimulus, too, and the reason why I can say it's a one-time deal, is because it's happening the way it's happening right now because of this state of exception of COVID, right? COVID has, has, has been this exogenous shock, as they've seen it, coming from the outside and crippling American capitalism. And so they have to do something heroic and outside. They have to think outside the box and do this one-time stimulus in order to get us back to a normal functioning economy. Like that's the one way they, they put it. It's like an exceptional thing. And the other thing too, of course, and this is so Democrat, this is like maybe one of the most Democrat things in the world. They're justifying this infrastructure spending to justify their new cold war with China right? Biden's come out the gate even more hawkish on China. And the argument that they're making to, to the senators and the Congress people and the American public is that if we don't do this, the yellow peril will come. We'll be overtaken by these hordes of Chinese communists, right? So even like the stimulus is couched in these terms of like fighting a new uh, Cold War, essentially, that's going to bring us back to like, I guess the 1950s, but this time it's China. So that's what you get with Biden. You get a one-time shot, and you get it justified through American imperialism. There you go, baby. Vote Democrat. Oh, God. And, and even that, we should note, it certainly runs up against its own contradictions and limitations because, uh, you know, you could say, oh, it's all hands on deck. We have to fight this virus. But they're not saying that when it comes to uh, a waiver that would enable countries in the global south. It would give up the intellectual property patents on these uh, American companies right. versions of the vaccine and allow countries in the global south to produce their own generic versions and Biden has been standing in the way of this um, and you could say oh well that doesn't make any like, like many left liberals have been that doesn't make any sense because you know even if you don't care about people in the global south which you definitely should uh, this is where the virus the variants are going to come from and they're going to come back and bite us in the ass and that there is a certain financial interest in keeping that from happening. However, it has also been argued, and I learned this from citations needed. Fuck them oh. for being so good. Yeah. Uh, really, they make the rest of us look bad. Um, Not me, but, but the rest of you guys, yeah. Sure, 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 <laughs> sure. Um, but, you know, on the other hand, they're saying, oh, well, this this is a national security threat because um, we can't be giving up our IP to China. China. Who knows what'll happen if we do that? And, you know, if we give it up to countries like Mexico, then we can't um, hold use this as leverage, basically, to yeah. make them do what we want geopolitically meanwhile, in our American, Cold War with China or whatever. Meanwhile, the State Department and the U.S. media is like freaking out about Chinese vaccine diplomacy and Russian diplomacy. Like they're giving people the vaccine in order to like, you know, convince them that China's good. It's like, yeah, that's what America does too. You beat your friends, you beat your enemies over the head with the vaccine stick, and then you help out your friends with the vaccine carrot. That's what every capitalist country does all the time. I mean, what's, so, so the one 
kind of argument that you can make that, okay, well, maybe this is a progressive policy, that it's not a one-time shot in the arm thing. There's actually two things. One was the minimum wage hike of $15 an hour, which already famously got the thumbs down from the Democrats, right? The $15 minimum wage increase. Uh, That's right. the, The other thing is the PRO Act, and so how do we understand this PRO Act, which allows American workers to organize uh, more easily and would presumably increase the power of unions? Well, I think that that's because fundamentally the uh, unions are not a threat. They're certainly not right now. They're not a threat to the Democrats. And in a, in a real sense, unions aren't a threat to uh, the capitalist economy right now, at least in their mind, because they see this COVID crisis and this stagnation that we're in as fundamentally a problem of underconsumption that the American working class and middle class is unable to do what it's supposed to do, which is be the consumer of last resort for global capitalism. So they're, they're really, even with that, they're doubling down on America's primacy in the world as the place where all the stuff that's made all over the place uh, comes in order to be consumed. And that can't last either, man. Not with the trade deficits, not with the debt, and not with a rising China. So the whole thing, even the PRO Act and the minimum wage part of it, is, is very backward looking. Very much an attempt to double down. Yeah, well... There's no... The PRO Act is not there to create independent, autonomous, working-class power. To the extent that, like, I... I, I talked about it. I, I've never been pro pro act, but the only real possibility that we as communists can see in that becoming anything beyond simply like integrating more and more workers uh, into the uh, reactive reactionary trade unions, business unions in this in this country, is if the process of unionization by workers after this sort of legislation is passed leads to those workers in their drive for self organization going beyond the limits of. American unionism itself, which I still think is a possibility, but, but on its face, just like as it is, I don't think the PRO Act does all that much for the working class, certainly not uh, uh, for working class autonomy and power in this country. That's an interesting take because I definitely remember reading an article in Jacobin that said the reasons that the $15 minimum wage and the PRO Act were probably going to get killed as opposed to the rest of this stuff is because they were the things most likely to empower workers rather than just giving them, you know, a little bit of charity, a little bit of help. Yeah, that's why they will be the least likely to pass. But even the logic of them, and if even if they were to pass, is very much within this enlightened left wing of capital view yeah. of them. It's not to create working class power, of course, right? That's the last thing the Democrats want. But it is to try to double down as the American worker being the consumer of last resort for the global economy. And what we're going to see, and I'm, I'm going to predict this, and I've been reading a lot about it. I think it's going to be true. Right now, uh, the American people, like uh, you know, the working class and middle class of this country, are sitting on $5.4 trillion of excess spending. You know, those are things that that's money that they couldn't spend due the, to the corona lockdown. So that money is going to be spent. It's going to be spent probably once the vaccines reach a critical mass, probably like in the summer or at least by the fall time. People are going to go out and start spending money again, and it's going to look like a giant boom. This along with the stimulus, you're going to hear people worrying about inflation. You're going to see news articles where everybody's out and buying like all the shit that they would have bought last year. They're buying it all at once. And this is going to look like Biden has solved the contradictions of capital, (laughs) that the left wing of capital triumphant with its stimulus has brought us back to a normal economy, right? But don't mistake that 
boom of consumer spending and GDP that we're going to see as the same as the type of economic growth necessary to bring capital out of, it, out of its doldrums. Because essentially, the issue that's of stagnation we've had over the last 40 years is not an issue of underconsumption per se. It's an issue of overaccumulation, overaccumulation of capital. So just want want to want to get ahead of that a little bit if people are telling us in like 3 4 months well oh well they they fix capitalism you know this biden mm-hmm. stimulus it, it really did it uh don't mm-hmm. mistake consumer spending and gdp for you know and this built up pent up demand for a return to profitability for most of capital you heard it here for, first folks i mean it's yeah consumption I don't- that's been deferred People were going to this 5.4 trillion people would have been spending over the last year. Now they're going to spend it all at once. And it's going to look really frothy. The capitalist press is going to get super mm, excited frothy. about the, the COVID recovery. And just uh, everyone cool your jets and, and we'll see how this shakes out after all of that. That sugar rush is gone. Uh, that's so depressing. I mean, it, it's depressing and it's not, right? Because as someone who believes capitalism needs to end, um, I think it's very important to show, demonstrate its failures. But I mean, it, it's failed. It's already, it's been failing. So been like, failed. I feel like, oh God, I don't have this quote right here, but um, it's a good one. It, someone sent me a TikTok, actually. My friends just send me stuff when they see stuff about communization and whatnot. Uh, it was a quote from the coming insurrection, I believe invisible committee about how, uh, fuck is it, uh, basically how the crisis is already here. Mm -hmm. It's been here and the only way to resolve it. Well, the only way out is through like the only way way to, the only way to resolve it is through revolution. There, I said it. They said it a lot more poetically, but um, the thing. You gotta I don't do really the feel thing. like looking it up right now. Got to do the thing, as they gotta, say. Uh, yeah, I mean, spoiler alert, <laughs> once again, all signs point to we got to do the thing. So well, and that's like, an inconvenient truth. And going back to the Maddox, Paul Maddox Sr. quote that I said earlier, this is a move of desperation on the part of the capitalist class and on the part of the left wing of capital. Don't buy into the Biden has been pushed left um, sphere because um, it's merely self-preservation. And regardless of what we see over the next few months or year or whatever economically, the fundamental problem of the economy, which is a stagnated rate of profit, is very unlikely to change. And we say that because Ultimately, the only choice that we have is to get beyond a system where the rate of profit dictates how well we live and whether we thrive or whether we starve. We need to get past that. And none of this sort of papering over of the contradictions that the left wing or the right wing of capital can offer us offers us truly a way out of this. The hour is way too late. Uh, There's no way out but through. Here we go. Here we go. I'm going to read this because they said it a lot nicer than I did. I'm a little hungover today. We can end a woman, with this. a few words. Let's let's Take do us it. Home. Take us out. Okay. This is the Invisible Committee from the Coming Insurrection, which I encourage everybody to read. And you know, maybe stage a gorilla reading at a Barnes and Noble with your friends if you have time. Mm-hmm. That's a thing that's happened. Link in the show description. Yeah. I for, I forget not everyone uh, like has the same friends as us and knows all the shit that's happened uh, with them. <laughs> but yeah, uh, we I feel like we talked about that on our episode with Jacob. Yeah, I'm gonna look it up. We can put it in the show notes. 
Yeah. So here we go. Here's the quote. It's useless to wait for a breakthrough for the revolution, the nuclear apocalypse, or a social movement. Go on waiting is madness. The catastrophe is not coming. It is here. You're already situated within the collapse of a civilization. Is within this reality that we must choose sides. There you um, have it. The couldn't have said it better myself. There's the party I said about this on History is a Weapon 7 or something with Matt. Everything is going to revolve down to, on the one hand, the party of order and the party of anarchy, but also the party of life and the party of death. And the party and the party of death is, of course, the capitalist class who's going to try to draw us into their politics, their left wing and their right wing. And for us to think and dream about a world within the bounds that they want us to, to, to think about it. But the, their way is only death. With climate change and with all these serious issues with the economy right now, the inability to integrate billions of people into the capitalist economy, leaving them surplus right? The way of the way that the left and the right wing of capital wants us to go is the way of death and destruction and misery. And the party of life, us, the working class on the other side, is the party says, that says, no, we need to get beyond that. We can no longer have human life and human development be dictated by things like the law of value, by dictated by like whether, um, I don't know, uh, GM decides to put a catalytic converter in or not and what the Wall Street Journal says about that stuff. That is the party of death that will ultimately lead us down the path of destruction. So there's no way out but through. We have to become the party of life. Badass. And, you know, it's easy to get really uber about this because uh, I haven't seen... I mean, I've seen like the basic building blocks, maybe the raw material. Some of the raw materials are there for this party of life to uh, to rise up and to challenge the power of capital. But we're like pretty fucked at this point. Like it hasn't happened yet. But maybe this is a nice note to end on because I always try to end on uh, something a little bit more uh, encouraging, shall we say? Yeah, go for um, it. I see this uh, this fun tweet that you put in uh, in the in the outline. Oh, Apparently, yeah. some work that there was a Sonic in Albuquerque that was having trouble uh, getting their workers to show up. <laughs> as it as it turns out, and there's a sign on the uh, in the little uh, little speaker drive-through thingy that says. We are short-staffed. Please be patient with a staff that did show up. No one wants to work anymore. <laughs> Inshallah. From that <laughs> sonic to no. God's ears, just say no to work. Never work, do crime. Step two, question mark. Step three, communism. I mean, that's the communizer way, right? Yeah. We can we can argue about the details, but yeah, it's for another. It's very episode. important. It's very important to say no to work. Yeah, just say no. All right. Well, let's wrap it up with that. This was very very fun, uh, and I guess we'll talk to everybody next week. Yeah, sounds good. Check us out on Twitch. I'm like fucking dying right now. I hope um, I hope the things I said made sense. Yeah, that was great. Check <laughs> us out at uh, twitch.tv slash the Antifada. Um, if you haven't checked us out yet, we're trying to push it because we have a lot of fun doing it. And it's an opportunity, you know, besides the Discord, which you can access if you're a patron, a way for you to jump on as a listener and interact with us and hang out and chat. We have people call in if you're a patron. We have listeners call in 
and uh, talk to us live on the air on Twitch. So check it out if you haven't yet. We uh, will put the schedule in the show notes. That's right. It is very cool to talk to everybody on Twitch. Um, also, I'm not going to front. It's a way that we're trying to make money, doing more uh, communist ideas and spreading spreading the word. So I don't know if that's a contradiction. It, probably it is. But uh this is the thing we're trying right now. I'm comfortable with it. If ESG investments uh, are a thing, then I think that we're we're totally covered on that. All right, sounds good. Your, I will invest in communist futures. Your moral consumption of communist futures. Okay. Bye bye. I'm a G, I'm going to get breathless. In the end, we'll pop your necklace. Don't try no shit with us. We're quick to bust through where you don't want problems. Rob them, they know we got things in us. These bitch niggas want to shit to us. Heat them up, heat them up, heat them up and make them simmer. I'm a crazy vigilante black nigga. Don't make me squeeze my trigger.